This week's podcast is brought to you by Hot Mike. The always opinionated advice columnist Dan Savage of Savage Love and Savage Love Cast has a new podcast. Hot Mike is available everywhere starting August 8th. The series from Audible features a curated selection of live stories about sex and relationships, as well as interviews with guests like Rachel Bloom, Jen Kirkman, Kevin Allison, and Guy Branham. And of course, expect to hear a few stories from Dan himself. Check out new episodes of Hot Mike with Dan Savage every Tuesday, available on Audible, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. A science story, huh? It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about wild animals, from the rhinos of the South African savanna to the seals of Antarctica. Our first story this week is from Ed Yang. It was recorded in April 2017 at a show hosted by the Earth Optimism Summit in Washington, D.C. Okay, so eight years ago, I was in South Africa uh, in a Jeep in the dark, thinking about the life choices I had made that had led to my safety and well-being being at risk by a flatulent rhino. So I was at this point about two hours into a safari, um, and and I'd I'd arrived at the safari lodge uh, in the mid-afternoon. So this first drive was going to be an evening one, which started uh, at dusk and then would continue into the night. Um, And it goes really well at first. We see a giraffe and some impala, and a hippo, and some impala, and some impala. Now, you might think it would be really churlish to be in a place of such beauty, of life uh, at, at its most diverse in what was like a living David Attenborough documentary, and to get irritated at seeing too much of any particular thing, and you would be right except safaris are sold on the basis of variety. You are told you will see all of this incredible stuff. And there's even that checklist, the big five, the um, leopard, lion, elephant, buffalo, and rhino. Um, And like in my head, I know that this is a dumb conceit, that safaris are not like zoos. There is no checklist. These animals are wild. They don't march to any timetable or schedule. But in my heart, I know that I've come a long way for this. I've paid a lot of money for this. This is probably one of the few chances in my life that I'll actually get to see this stuff in the wild, things that I've only seen before in zoos and in nature documentaries and in books. And I really want to see it all. I really want to see a wild elephant or a lion or a leopard or some impala. Whoever said that familiarity breeds contempt was probably talking about impalas. Uh, It is really astonishing how quickly you can go from the first time you see them thinking, this is such a beautiful animal, look at the elegance of its slender build, the beautiful corkscrew of its horns, the way the sunlight 
beams down upon its hide and reflects into my eyes, filling me with joy for all of creation. And then like an hour later, you're like, fuck. Impala. And like horned rats. And like hooved pigeons. And then, he, and then as the sun sets fully and it gets properly dark, even the impala go away. And now it is the time, we are told, for seeing Africa's nocturnal animals. It's small, scurrying, less common, less frequently observed species. And that is true, except because it's very dark, the only lights we have are the uh, giant headlamps of our jeep. And it turns out that Africa's nocturnal, small, scurrying animals are also super skittish in the face of giant headlights beaming down upon them. So the things that we do see are very fleeting and kind of hard to make out. So over there, we see a maybe mongoose, a sort of bush baby, a possibly owl. And so we're driving along, and we're not really seeing very much. And the worst bit of it is, because of my own stupid fault, I am very uncomfortable, because I have... I, I arrive at the safari lodge so excited about going on this trip that I have forgotten three key pieces of information. One, at springtime in South Africa, when the sun goes down, it gets really cold, much like in this room. Imagine with me. Um, two, safari vehicles, though they have canopies, do not have coverings on the sides and backs. So they're open to the elements. And three, they rush through the elements at very high speed. So between the cold and the windshield and the fact that yours truly has rocked up in just a t-shirt like an idiot, I am really, really cold. Now, fortunately, the safari guides have prepared for the arrival of possible idiots by packing blankets inside the vehicle. So I've got a blanket wrapped over me and I'm sort of shivering my way through this otherwise uneventful pitch black game drive. Uh, and we're not seeing very much uh, until six white rhinos trundle out of the bush onto the path in front of us and sit down. Uh, which is great. Um, we, maybe the driver knew that they were there and was expecting this, but we certainly had no idea. Because you might think that Africa's large animals, so it's elephants and rhinos and hippos, uh, would be large lumbering animals that would rustle the undergrowth and shake the ground with every footstep. But it turns out they are surprisingly stealthy. Um, because while a rhino's foot is like this, its leg is like this giant sturdy columnar tree trunk, um, underneath that, its skeleton is basically doing this. It's like standing on tiptoes. Um, and the heel is resting on this giant pad of fat and muscle, like the world's largest platform shoe. Which means that a rhino's footsteps are very quiet, and which means that we didn't hear these things. A rhino is basically like a cross between a tank and a ninja. So these six giant ninja tanks come out of nowhere and they walk in front of us and they lie down in front of the path. Um, so we aren't going anywhere, we just sit down and watch them. And this is great because they're white rhinos, they're amazing animals, they're some of my favorite animals. They are inherently paradoxical. There's something really weird about them that doesn't quite fit together. They are seemingly impervious, but they are also critically endangered. There is an obvious threat to them because of the horn, but they're also strangely comical and endearing. 
and there are six of them in front of us, and we get to spend some time with them, which is fantastic. But after a while, we start getting a bit impatient. Not because they're not cool, they are, but because, as I said, it's very cold, and it's really late. Like we had, we had already decided to call the drive quits and go home, and we were very close to home, and we definitely needed to get home. But the path to home was being blocked by six rhinos. So we sat there, and we waited. Um, and as if to sort of lighten the mood, one of the rhinos decides to fart really loudly and extensively. Now, I know you're serious people here for some serious stories about serious science, but let me tell you that a farting rhino is exactly as funny as you might imagine it to be. And so lured by this sort of false sense of comedic security, our driver decides to skirt around the sleeping rhinos uh, and make his way back home, which is a mistake because Farty McRhino does not like that one bit and gets up and walks over to us. Now, I say gets up and walks over, it, it more like teleported. I said rhinos are paradoxical, and that also, that also applies to their speed. They look slow and lumbering, but they are, in fact, you would be very surprised how quickly a sleeping flat rhino can go from that position to not only on its feet, but in your face. Uh, and so it's there, and um, I did what any 20-something man-child would do. I tried to obsessively take a really good photo of it. I had come prepared for this safari. I had bought a new bridge camera, which is what you call cameras that, are, uh, that look like they're for people who know what they're doing, but are in fact designed for people who have no idea what they're doing. Um, and I was in that latter group. Um, so I was sort of ineffectually pissing around with F numbers and shutter speeds and ISOs like I had any idea what any of these things were, let alone how best to use them effectively. Um, but fortunately, we had a lot of time in which to piss around with that because we weren't going anywhere, and there was a giant rhino standing in front of us now. Um, and I had thought, as it got close, it's really close now, I can get a great photo. <laughs> Which was sort of the wrong thing to think. Because a rhino weighs around two tons. This thing is slightly sm only slightly smaller than the Jeep and it is about a body length away from us. Its head is lowered, its horn is pointing at us. Now, you, maybe we were in no danger whatsoever. Rhinos have very poor eyesight, so maybe this thing was just checking us out. But still, it is right there, and we've already seen how quickly it can move when it wants to. So we decide to give it a lot of respect, and we are all very, very quiet. Um, no one particularly told us to be very quiet, but I think we all knew, some of us knew that rhinos make up for their poor eyesight with exceptional hearing. And even those that didn't were painfully aware of the fact that its ears were doing this. One was sort of scanning around like a periscope, and the other was just glued onto us. So we waited, and it waited, and we were very quiet. And now I've stopped trying to take a photo of it, and I am very, very present in this scene, and I'm sort of understanding what is happening. And so I think to myself, don't be an idiot, put the camera away. And so I turn it off, and it makes this noise. 
And now both ears are glued upon us. And so we wait, and we're very quiet, and I'm not taking photos. But I am very, very cold again, because that, the now two blankets that I've wrapped around me, I've done pretty much all they're going to do, which means that, I don't know, like 10, 15 minutes into our standoff with this rhino, with this two-ton cantankerous horned ninja tank with the super hearing, my teeth start doing this. I don't know how long we were there for. Could have been 15 minutes, could have been 20, half an hour. But we had no control over this situation. Um, I was trying my best uh, not to make any more noise. It kind of reminded me of the very first time I'd been on safari several years before. Um, we were watching, uh, again, out the side of an open-sided vehicle, a uh, Cape Buffalo, um, another aggressive animal, as an, right, an, aggressive, an, an aggressive animal with very powerful hearing. And uh, our driver leans over to us and says, this is a very dangerous animal. It has really, really good hearing. So I need you all to be very, very quiet. And the passenger next to me leans over and says, what did you say? So we drove away really quickly. But with a the rhino, there was no driving away. It was blocking the way. Um, and so we just, we had to wait. And eventually, it gave way. It took several steps back, and our driver takes this opportunity to try again to go around the herd. And this time, all of them get up and walk away, and they disappear into the bush to do whatever rhinos do at night. And we also disappear off to the bush into the other direction, heading back to the lodge. Me with a very grainy photo of a rhino on my camera, uh, mild hypothermia setting into my limbs, and also a giant smile on my face. I don't remember being nervous or scared by this experience. Um, it was one of the most incredible wildlife encounters, wildlife encounters or really any encounter in my life. Um, for a start, I think it exemplifies how nature can very quickly turn from tedium to comedy to threat in a flash. But it also felt like a gift um, because you know, these are incredible animals. There are only like 20,000 white rhinos left in the wild, and we got to spend our time with six of them. And with this one animal in particular, and got to take in the curve of its horn, the twitchiness of the ears, the um, texture of its skin, the way its breath was condensing on the cool night air. I think our society turns us very easily into collectors, not just of material things, but of experiences and photos and knowledge and memories. We're always looking for the next thing to the extent that sometimes we forget about the thing that's standing right there in front of us. And the wonderful thing about nature is that it sometimes gives us no choice but to do that, whether through its beauty or its immensity or the danger it poses. It has a way of grabbing our attention and wresting it from our control. It forces us to abandon the desire to see everything and focus on seeing just the one thing. 
unless that thing is an Impala. So two days later, we are on the final drive of this safari, and against our better judgment, we've decided to pursue a leopard, uh, which has disappeared around a bend in front of us. So our driver decides to climb up this incline and drive onto a plateau where we might be able to see the leopard looking down. And as we get to the top of the incline, we see a very large elephant that's foraging on a tree. And again, we try and skirt around it, which is a mistake because the elephant decides to charge us and its trunk is raised and it's trumpeting like a demon and its ears are spread out and our driver whacks the Jeep into reverse. And now we're going backwards down the same incline we just, drew, we just drove up with this big elephant bearing down on top of us. And the driver leans out the side of the Jeep and he slams his hand against the door and the thwack stops the elephant dead in its tracks. And now we are stopped and it is stopped and we are looking up at it and it is looking down on top of us with all its immensity. And again, I am not scared. I'm not nervous. I take one surreptitious photo with my camera that has been set to silent and I put it away, and then I take in the rest of this incredible animal. And this time, I am wearing a fucking coat. <laughs> Thank you. That was Ed Young. Ed is a science journalist who reports for The Atlantic. His work has also been featured in National Geographic, The New Yorker, Wired, Nature, New Scientist, Scientific American, and many more. He has won a variety of awards, including the Michael E. DeBakery Journalism Award for Biomedical Reporting and the Byron H. Wakesman Award for Excellence in the Public Communication of Life Science in 2016. His TED Talk on mind-controlling parasites has been watched by over 1.5 million people. His first book, I Contain Multitudes, was published in 2016 and looks at the amazing partnerships between animals and microbes. It became a New York Times bestseller and was listed in the best of 2016 lists by The New York Times, NPR, The Economist, The Guardian, and several others. Bill Gates called it science journalism at its finest, and Jeopardy turned it into a clue. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. This week's podcast is brought to you by Virtue Labs, a new hair care brand with the vision to give everyone the best hair scientifically possible. Six years ago, a group of bioscientists working in restorative medicine discovered an incredible new protein called alpha-keratin-60-KU. Alpha-keratin-60-KU is a whole human protein that's identical to the keratin in your own hair, so it can resurface and fill in cracks from damage to change your hair's quality and appearance forever. Right now, you can only find it in Virtue Lab's line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Not to mention each formula was created to address specific issues like heat damage, frizz, or thinning hair. That means more bounce, more shine, more strength, and more life for your hair. If you're ready to experience it, you can try it now at 10% off and get free shipping with the code COLLIDER. Visit VirtueLabs.com to place your order. It's time to start treating our hair with a little more humanity. It's time for Virtue. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Gifford Wong. It was recorded in March 2017 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme of the night was Outsiders. Imagine a place so cold that even in the summertime, 
The sea freezes over, and all you hear are the cries of seals and penguins. It's summertime in the southern hemisphere, and it's a bluebird day, and all you can see is the telltale puff of Mount Erebus, the southernmost active volcano in the world. I'm kneeling next to Crystal, a female Weddell seal, maybe 30 yards from a sea ice crack. I'm not alone. I'm with Rob and Scott. Rob and Scott have been researching seals for maybe 25 years between them. And this is the first time that I've told this story because those aren't their real names. Dressed in a puffy coat and Carhartts, you could say I was working outside what my mom thought was socially acceptable. Now I know my mom loves me, as every mother does. So let me set the scene in that moment, just a few years removed from graduating undergrad. I grew up in California in an Asian American household ruled by what we now call a tiger mom. My mom is probably tiger mom light, but I still only knew of three career choices: doctor, lawyer, or engineer. I liked cars, so I went the engineering route. I went to Cal to study mechanical engineering, and about the third year, something happened. I learned about community engagement. I found this tutorial service that empowered K through 12 students in Oakland's Chinatown to do better in school, and I changed my major to Asian American Studies. Mom was not thrilled, <laughs> but I wanted to serve communities. So after finishing college, I found AmeriCorps. There, I met so many inspired people doing so many. Amazing projects across the country, and learned so many valuable lessons. One of which was at a job fair in Denver. There are seasonal jobs to be had in Antarctica. What? <laughs> First opportunity I could, I applied to be a general assistant at the U.S. Antarctic Program's McMurdo Station. General assistant is like the entry-level job next to janitor or dishwasher. But it was like a dream come true. If for no other reason, it got me to this marvelous city, on top of this storied stage, talking in front of all you beautiful people. <laughs> so, for those of you who don't know, the U.S. Antarctic Program operates three stations on the icy continent: McMurdo Station, South Pole Station, and Palmer Station. So, if everyone could just do me the favor. Take your left hand and make a hitchhiker's thumb, and face the palm. This is Antarctica. Your thumb is the Antarctic Peninsula, pointing towards South America, and Palmer Station is close to the tip. Your fingernails represent the Trans-Antarctic Mountains, which essentially splits the continent between the West Antarctic and East Antarctic ice sheets. South Pole Station is on the East Antarctic ice sheet near the first knuckle of your middle finger. The Weddell Sea is the web of your hand, and the meat of your palm is the Ross Sea. Ross Island, where McMurdo Station is built and where the story takes place, is right around your ring、uh, ring finger's fingernail. So back to Crystal. 
Crystal is part of a dive study looking at how seals, how much energy seals expend when they're looking for food underneath the sea ice. This is Rob's project. Crystal is also part of a larger long-term study looking at how seal populations are doing around Ross Island. This is Scott's project. How did I get to work with these SEAL scientists as a general assistant who has no background in science? Let's just say Rob ran over his grad student's leg with the camp's snowcat, <laughs> breaking her leg in the process. Okay, so right now, the instruments uh, of Rob's project uh, that you attach to the seal that measure how quickly they move um, need to be detached from the seal. So that's why Rob, Scott, and I went out to Crystal in the first place. Now, to detach or attach these instruments, Rob has a technique that we call flag, bag, and tag. You need at least two scientists, but preferably three. Scientist number one takes a bamboo pole with a flag on it, stands in front of the seal, and waves it around. <laughs> this distracts the seal. <laughs> the second scientist, or sometimes general assistant, has to take a vinyl bag with heavy-duty ropes and sneak behind the seal until you're straddling the seal and you fling the bag over the seal's head. Now typically, the seal will calm down inside the dark bag. But every now and again, you better hang on for the oddest eight seconds of your life <laughs> until the seal stops bucking and calms down. With the bag still over the now calm seal's head, we introduce an anesthetic that knocks the seal momentarily out. This is what allows us to attach and detach these instruments. The key word, though, is momentarily. Crystal should be breathing right now, vocalizing, moving around, maybe wandering away from us. Instead, I'm kneeling next to a thousand pound cow with no legs who hasn't taken a breath in over 10 minutes. We know this because we've been watching her, staring at her body, hoping that it would rise and fall with the action of, you know, breathing. Scott even took off his glove, put his hand next to her nostrils to feel for breath, like they do in the movies. Nothing. Now, if you or I fell unresponsive and someone here called the paramedics, one of the first tests they might try is something called the sternal rub. It's a great way to assess whether a patient is actually unconscious or just really, really tired. Turns out Weddell Seals has a similar move. And if you rub the area on their snout between their eyes, it supposedly wakes them right up, usually. So Scott now kneels down, takes off his glove, rubs Crystal's snout, nothing. Scott continues to rub Crystal's snout Rob and I are jumping up and down, clapping, yelling, still nothing. We go at this for about like a minute or two. Scott and Rob look really, really anxious. And I'm not the expert, I just assist generally. I'm just like, what's going on? 
what's going on? So they have this conversation, and basically, they at least rule out Crystal is not dead. Because that would be a whole mountain of paperwork that no one wants to do. <laughs> the reality is, they think that Crystal is just in what's called dive mode. And this sometimes happens when you sedate seals. See, seals have this flap way down their throat that when they dive, it closes, protecting their lungs from potential seawater coming in. Now, this flap is, like I said, way down the seal's body. And Scott's idea is to resuscitate Crystal by opening up her airway. And then he says, well, I've never done this myself. I've only seen my advisor do it in the field back when I was a grad student. So like I have the concept in mind, but I'm not sure if I know what I'm looking for. I'm sitting there thinking, is that all? I mean, is there like CPR involved after you like release the flap? I remember taking an EMT course and my instructor said, CPR is only 100% effective on Baywatch. <laughs> Everywhere else, there's a chance that the patient will die. In fact, CPR will more likely fail than succeed. Again, I'm a general assistant. I know my place, but I'm not putting my lips on that seal's mouth. <laughs> I'm a general assistant. I'm not a seal doctor. Scott assures me that once the flap is released, Crystal will breathe spontaneously. All you have to do is tickle it. <laughs> now between you, me, and your high school self, when is the last time something went smoothly the first time you tried it? <laughs> Especially when you couldn't see what you were doing. All right. So here's the game plan. Here's the game plan. Scott's gonna take his arm, insert it into Crystal's mouth, down her throat, find the flap, tickle it, <laughs> saving the seal. Rob and I have an important job also. All we have to do is make sure Crystal doesn't bite Scott's arm off. Because remember, Crystal is a predator, a half-ton fish-eating machine with teeth. So Rob takes a length of rope, climbs on top of Crystal, wraps it around her upper jaw, and pulls back. I'm the general assistant. I get the crap job. I get the bag with the rope handle, wrap it around Crystal's lower jaw, which means I'm face to snout with Crystal on my stomach. Not only do I feel just a little vulnerable, she just eats fish. All that fish breath is wafting over me. Scott takes off his jacket, rolls his sleeve up as high as it can go, and says, okay, on the count of three, I'm gonna stick my arm into Crystal's mouth. One, two, Three. Uh, oh my God. 
So Rob jumps off. I do the snowiest tucker roll in my life. <laughs> Crystal's not breathing. We turn to Scott. Like, what's up, Scott? Scott's like, I thought I felt something. Sorry, guys. Okay, false alarm. I'm ready. <laughs> I am so ready right now. Crystal's not going to die. Okay, here we go. So Rob gets back on. I get back on my stomach. Scott's like, all right, guys. One, two, three. Tickle, tickle, tickle. Crystal's alive. What? Starts breathing, starts vocalizing, and groggily slumps off towards the sea ice crack that was 30 yards away. I can't believe what I just saw. We all can't believe what we just saw. We just resuscitated an unconscious seal, right? Like, we're jumping up and down, literally, like little schoolboys. High-fiving, what up? And that's when we decided we shouldn't tell this story to anyone because, I mean, this was kind of heavy. I mean, a seal almost died. But I mean, y'all look trustworthy. Um, uh, it happened over a decade ago and I used fake names. So the take home message is obviously clear. Uh, if you run across a seal who happened to be sedated and won't wake up, even after you rubbed her snout, uh, don't forget the tickle the flap trick. <laughs> but since that crazy day, I've been back to Antarctica eight times, even gone to Greenland four times, and earned my PhD along the way. Mom was thrilled. <laughs> But Crystal was my first polar science adventure. And without a doubt, she's the reason why I started my slippery slide into science-dom. I've traded my puffy coat and Carhartts for a suit and tie, and I work at the intersection of science, policy, and diplomacy. But you never forget your first. <laughs> Thanks, Crystal. That was Gifford Wong. Gifford is a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow working at the Department of State. He previously served in the Senate as the American Geosciences Institute Congressional Geoscience Fellow. He has done fieldwork in Greenland and Antarctica, co-developed and co-instructed a graduate-level science communication course at Dartmouth, and thinks penguins and unicorns are cool. Every now and then, he is on Twitter as at Gifford Wong. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb up the rankings, and that helps new listeners find the podcast. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, Simon's Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Paula Croxon, Shane Hanlon, Miriam Zeringhalem, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Audrey Kearns, Eli Chen, Zach Stovall, Kelly Vanal, Mesa Saleta, and Emma Yarborough, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Earth Optimism Summit and to Busboys and Poets for hosting these shows, and to all the heroes out there who have ever resuscitated a seal or faced down a farting rhino. Thanks for listening.
This week's podcast is brought to you by Virtue Labs, a hair care brand with a vision to give everyone the best hair with the help of an incredible new protein called Alpha Keratin 60KU. Alpha Keratin 60KU is a whole human protein that's identical to the keratin in your own hair that can fill in cracks from damage and give your hair more bounce, shine, and strength. Try it exclusively in Virtue Labs shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Go to virtualabs.com and use the code COLLIDER for 10% off and free shipping.